Let's open up the scriptures together, okay, to 2 John. It's one of the small letters towards the, the right side of your Bible. The, um, 2 John comes right after 1 John, in case you're wondering. Right before 3 John, we're going to look at 2 John this morning, and this evening we'll look at 3 John together. Um, as we seek to know God and obey his word together. I'd like to read through 2 John a section at a time, and we'll start with uh, the greeting. Verses 1 through 3. Follow along as I read. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Have you picked up on some themes already through repetition? Well, the author, is, he identifies himself as the elder. He's a leader in the churches and carries with that title some authority. Most likely the Apostle John. Uh, you'll see this in his style in just reading this, if you're at all familiar with the Gospel of John or any of his writings. And you'll see some of the themes. Some even considered that this letter, 2 John, might have traveled with 1 John as a kind of cover letter to 1 John. Because of the themes, you'll see some, some very uh, parallel wording and themes as we look at this together. The receivers of the letter, as you see there, are the elect lady and her children. That is a way to talk about a local congregation. The elect congregation. Those who have been chosen by God for God. The elect lady and her children. The children and, and the local church and the individuals within that congregation. There seems to be a definite personal con uh, connection between the elder and the elect lady and her children um, because of the wording that's used, as you'll see throughout here. But John here is appealing to his authority as an elder, as if he's about to say something difficult, because he is. As you probably picked up on the, one of the, um, a couple of the themes here, the theme in this letter is truth and love. The author tips his hand to where he's going in the greeting. He shows you what he's going to be getting at. Truth and love. It comes out in repetition. You see the word truth used four times in three verses. He uses the word love twice. And he'll use it more and more. What do we think of when we think of truth and love? Those two words, truth and love. What comes to mind? Some of us may think, may tend to think this way, that truth is like this rational thing here. Like two plus two equals four. Truth. Rational. Love, on the other hand, is this like emotional thing. We're we can be tempted to think this way. I emotional, like I have feelings for somebody. The way it's used in popular culture is something that we can just fall into. 
an emotional thing. But as Christians, we know that love is an action. It's doing something. And as Christians, we don't simply live by our emotions, by the way we feel about someone or something. Our emotions, our love, needs to be grounded in something. You understand? Grounded. I love this person because of this truth. I demonstrate this kind of love towards others because of what Christ has taught. So, sometimes we might think that these two are mutually exclusive. Truth and love. We can't have love without the other. And sometimes we feel like we're faced with that opportunity. Um, the, classic, the, the classic illustration is, um, honey, does this dress make me look good? What were you thinking? Make look, yeah, does it make me look? Of course it does, honey. Okay, so sometimes we're tempted to think, okay, well, if I tell the truth... But if I lie, but I love her, so maybe I shouldn't tell the truth. Sometimes we think in those terms. I want to pull back away from that a little bit, though. Okay. Love, there's a relationship between love and truth that needs to be. This little letter here is going to teach us the essential connection between, between truth and love. And we start to see the connection that these two have together in the very first, very first verse. Whom I love in the truth. Whom I love in truth. What, what does he mean by that? I've, I've wondered about that often. When you see, remember John writes this way. John, in John chapter 4, says, I'm going to worship in spirit and in truth. Like worship in truth. I think of like truth as like this thing I'm going to worship in that thing. What, what am I saying? What is John saying when he says, love in truth? Love in truth. To love in truth means to love in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Christ. Love in truth. If you're not loving in this way, as Christ has called us to, you're not really loving. And this is what this letter is all about. Love in truth. Love and truth. Love in truth. Love in a way that is consistent with the truth, but also truth, Christ's teaching, that truth insists on love for one another. One commentator, I, I, Howard Marshall, says this, where love is absent, it is a sign that the truth has not been accepted. He, John is going to push hard on this to start. And then he's going to push harder on something else. Truth. Verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He's appealing to the unity that they have in the truth, a unity that they will have together forever. The truth is what is bringing them together. It's why he's loving them, because of the truth. Verse 3 is kind of a, a normal greeting, but expressing these themes. In other words, you only get grace, mercy, and peace 
if truth and love have the right kind of relationship with each other. He's going to explain that a little bit more about this relationship between truth and love and how we ought to have that, these things. He's saying if you want grace, mercy, and peace, then we ought to have love and truth. Well, let's get into this. The body of the letter. The body of the letter goes from verse 4 all the way to verse 11. In my opinion, I separate this, le- this body of the letter into two parts, okay? In the two parts, I separate it from verse 4 down through verse 6 and from verse 7 through verse 11. And the reason I do that, so wh- one thing that's been difficult for me as a student of the Word is whenever John writes which is a lot, it's hard for me to like really wrap my mind around certain things that he says, okay? For example, verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6 and verse 9 are somewhat of proverbial statements that are sometimes hard to like nail down. What is he saying here? What is going on? Verse 6 and verse 9. Look at verse 6 real quick with me. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Do you see that kind of proverbial statement, proverb kind of writing? Well, I think there's a structure to this letter that um, goes right around this proverb, these proverbs. Verse 4, I'm going to remind you of this as we go through. Verse 4 is something of a short narrative. Verse 5 is an exhortation. Verse 6 is a proverb. And then he's going to repeat that pattern. Verse 7, something of a narrative. Verse 8, an exhortation. You see the command there? Verse 9, proverb. And then verses 10 and 11. The two verses we're all wondering about. Go ahead and look down and read that to yourself if you'd like. We'll get there if there's time. Um, It's an additional exhortation to really compound the exhortation. Or some have even seen that there is a repetition of that same pattern, narrative, exhortation, proverb. Okay. I think as we look at this, those are some things that where we can kind of hooks to hang the text on. So narrative, and then an exhortation, and then a proverb. Verses 4 through 6. Let's look at verse 4. And the theme of this section is love one another. Love one another. Verse 4, narrative. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John is rejoicing greatly because some of the believers are walking in the truth. Hint, Hint, those of you with your Greek Bibles open, you're probably wondering about this. The personal phrase there can have this idea of some and not others. Some of you, I'm rejoicing in some of your children walking in the truth. Most of our English translators take it this way, that there's some. So if that is true, John is subtly questioning some of the reader's commitment to walking in the truth. He's saying, it's great to hear that some of you are walking in the truth. Some of you are not, though. And he's going to get more into this in the second half of the letter. 
those who are not walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. What does that phrase mean, walking in the truth? It's living in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Christ. Living in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus is the Son of God? Do you follow his teachings as if that were the case? Submitting ourselves to whatever he would have for us. Because he is God. Just like we were commanded by the Father. This, this has deep roots. Just as we were commanded by the Father. Or to put another way, this is what we have learned from the beginning. Verse 5, the exhortation. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So here's the exhortation. Now, I have something to ask you, dear lady. He's like softening because he's about to ask him something difficult. And it's going to get even more difficult as we get throughout the letter. The way he's setting this up, commands, uh, this, setting up this command, suggests that he's about to broach a topic that has potential of disrupting relationships. You guys ever been there before? You ever, ever been there where you're about to say something, maybe at work, to somebody? You know, this might cause some trouble. But it needs to be said. And this is what he's about to do. John is about to say something that might cause some, dis, that might cause some disagreement, disrupting relationships, but it needs to be said. And this is not a new commandment. We have had this one from the beginning. In fact, Jesus taught this very commandment. Love one another. This is not new. This is like old school. Remember we used to teach that back in the day? Jesus said this a lot. Love one another. The love of God and the love of neighbor, on these things hang all the law and the prophets. This is not new. It's what Christ taught. This is what the apostles have been teaching in the churches that they've been visiting throughout the first century. And this is what the apostles have been writing about. Love one another. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like, love one another? And that's a fair question. Thank you for asking that. But he's not going to get super specific at this point because that's not his point. His point is something different. Verse 6, the proverb, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And this verse I spent so much time thinking about, so hopefully, and it's really difficult for me to comprehend, but hopefully I can communicate it to you clearly that you would understand. And maybe it just came naturally to you because you're really good with John's letters, John's writings, better than I am. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments, plural. The commandment, singular, is this. Just like you've heard from the beginning, walk in it. Walk in that commandment. So, 
This is love, that first phrase, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Just like he said, walk, uh, um, I, I love in truth, remember verse one, whom I love in truth. It's that kind of love. It's a love that is connected to what Jesus has been teaching and has taught. Love, that we walk according to his commandments. We live this out according to his commandments. And the commandment, just like we heard from the beginning, is this. And we should walk in it. The commandment is, from the end of verse 5, that we love one another. This, this is the commandment. We've heard this from the beginning. Walk in it. Are you hearing this theme repeated in this first section here? Love according to, way, to the way Christ has taught. His commandments. Love one another. Walk in it. Live like this. Nothing new here. Back to the basics. Love one another. Application point number one. Ready for it? Love one another. You already wrote that down, right? Love one another. And this is a theme throughout, the gospel, throughout John's writings. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. That we should what? Love one another. 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Does that sound familiar from 2 John? This is the message you've heard from the beginning. What's the message? That we should love one another. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's love. 1 John 4.7-8, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is not a new thing. This ought to be a basic characteristic that we're examining in our lives constantly, and we're looking for ways to improve how to love one another more and more. We're basing our personal interactions with each other on this Love for one another. I do this because I love you. All right, Pastor Paul, give me some specifics on what I should do. Well, I don't think the author goes there. He has something else in mind. I mean, we could all come up with ideas on how we ought to be more loving. We give examples by serving, by giving up our rights, by giving up our preferences. We could get really detailed in those things. But getting to the details here is not exactly what the author is intending. I believe he's intending to show us the relationship between love and truth. And I think here, the author is getting us back to the basics. Love one another. Think about the impact that him writing that statement and it being read in churches might have for people in the congregation. Imagine there's conflict in the congregation in which it's being read. And John says, love one another. Love. So the con people in conflict are looking at each other and thinking, 
how can I demonstrate my love for this person? Imagine people are faced with difficult decisions on what to do, how to live, how to act, love one another. But it might, it might mean I get taken advantage of, trampled on, okay? Can I remind you about the Good Samaritan? Can I remind you about what Jesus has done? Giving up his rights? Think about the impact that my saying this phrase might have on this congregation this morning. Love one another. Maybe there's a husband and wife in here who were in conflict this morning to the point where they didn't even say a, way, a word to each other on the way to church because of conflict, and your kids saw it. Love one another. Love. Get back to the basics. Run everything through this grid in our relationships. Church members who disagree strongly in an area of preference, love one another. But I wish we did this. I wish this was happening. I love one another. Get back to the basics of love for one another. Run your thinking and your actions through the grid of love for one another. Imagine the outcome that this would give us. As if we were competing as who can love each other the most. Or the way Paul says it in Romans 12, outdoing each other and showing honor. But there's something else. There's something more to this love for one another. And that's in this next section. Verses 7 through 11. Number two, so number one is love one another. Number two, hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. Verse 7, narrative. For many deceivers who have gone out into the world have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So there are false teachers who are going out into our world who do not confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, deity, the Son of God. They are called deceivers, antichrists. They are against Christ, enemies of the gospel. We can be tempted to sometimes think, well, they're really nice people. And they might be, by the grace of God. But if they're preaching a different gospel, they are deceivers, anti-Christs. Pause with me for a little bit and put yourself in the setting of the first century best we can. Jesus has ascended and left his apostles as the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. The apostles are traveling and preaching and teaching the truth about Jesus and all that he taught and commanded. They're going all over the place. 
And now there are deceivers and antichrists. Maybe even somebody who has wrote, written a false letter, like we saw in 2 Thessalonians last week. An imposter letter. Because real knowledge of God and Jesus in reality and truth is only found in the coming of Christ, we need to know the truth, hold fast to the truth. When, Jesus, when, when John uses that word coming, the, that confession, the coming of, Christ, of Jesus Christ in the flesh, that confession, he's not just talking about his physical appearance on the scene. But also, he's referring to him coming to save. The coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He has arrived, and he is saved. He is saving. One commentator says this, The confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh does not simply acknowledge that Jesus was a fully human historical person, although it does that, but not just that. Um, Back to the quote. But accepts the redeeming significance of his incarnate life Death and resurrection on behalf of the human race. It's not just about his physical coming. It's about what he has done. That confession. Jesus has come. God sent his son into the world to save sinners like me and like you. God became man so that he might die in our place. Jesus took my place. He died on the cross. He bore God's wrath. That should have been for me. It should have been for me and for my sin. He took it, and three days later, he rose from the grave, proclaiming victory over sin, death, and hell. And if you decide to follow Jesus today, if you decide to put your trust in him, to trust Jesus with your life, to live for him and for him alone, you too will have victory over sin, death, and hell. You will have eternal life. And you will start to see this victory over sin in this life, but after this life, full victory will be ours. Praise be to God. Don't go back on this truth. Hold it fast. Teens, excuse me, teens, Many of you have grown up in the church and heard it a thousand times. Believe it. Trust. Confess this to be true. Follow him with your life. Don't be deceived by false teachings. Which brings us to our next verse. Watch out. Verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Here's your exhortation, verse 8. Watch out. The apostles have worked hard to get the truth out. And now there are deceivers trying to undercut what they have been teaching. Notice that, the change in pronoun there. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. And believing this is a matter of eternal life or eternal 
death. You win a full reward. So, watch out. Watch for these people who are trying to trick you. They're deceivers. Anti-Christs. So that you may win full reward. Eternal life with him. And verse 9 doesn't explain what that is. Verse 9. And here again is our proverb, another proverb. There are two parts to this proverb. Let me read the text first. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There are two parts to this proverb. One, you do not have God if you go on ahead and don't abide in the teaching of Christ. That verb that's translated goes on ahead is talking about going beyond or, or going too far. They're, they're no longer teaching what Christ has taught. They've added their own spin on it. But the point is that they're not abiding in the teaching of Christ. You see that? Goes, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So if your teaching does not match what Christ is teaching, you don't have God. Do you want God? Maybe you're somebody here who thinks that I've just got it all figured out. You think, I know, I know what's right and wrong. I know the people that should be, what people should be believing and what people should be teaching, what people should be, how they should be living. I know all of that. Well, if your belief doesn't match up to exactly what Jesus has taught, you don't have God. If you have not submitted yourself to Christ's teaching, saying, abiding in his teaching of Christ, that person does not have God. Or, a popular view, there's a lot of different religions but they're all worshiping the same God. They just call them different names. Heard this one? You call them God or Yahweh or Jehovah or Jesus or Allah or Heavenly Father or the Mormon view. They believe that Jesus was the Son of God or say that he's the Son of God. They don't believe that he is equal to the Father, that he is God. It's heresy. And that's a radically different Jesus. It's a different Jesus. They don't have God. No one has God unless they are following, submitting, trusting in the teaching of Jesus. The second part of this proverb says this, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Following Christ and his teaching. Believe in him. Submit yourself to him. Trust him. He's the creator of all things, and he has died for our sins. So, repent. Turn from following yourself and your ideas, and turn and follow Jesus. Submit yourself to him. And the message of the gospel is this. We 
get God. Praise the Lord. There's a book that John Piper wrote. God is the gospel. We get God. We were alienated from God as unbelievers, and now we have a relationship with God. We are accepted by God because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We get to be, caught, we get to be counted among God's family. We get God. We have the Father, the Son, if we abide, if we remain, if we rest in the teachings of Christ. And then an additional exhortation, verses 10 through 11. Or some people might see it as a short narrative, a short exhortation, and a short proverb, repeating the pattern he's done twice already. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What? This is a difficult verse, a difficult couple of verses. What, what do we do with this? I want to work through this carefully. But is he saying like, give him any greeting? So if someone comes to your house and you're like, hello, like, no, you just participated in his wicked works. Oh, um, okay. Um, is that what he's saying? Is there something more here? I want to get down into this phrase by phrase and think through what's going on here. What do we do with this exhortation? Strong language is used here in this exhortation. Do we allow people into our home who are unbelievers? Do we allow people into our home who are teaching heresy? What is going on here? Well, um, first of all, if, look at this phrase, if anyone comes to you. In the first century, teaching was spread by traveling teachers going from town to town to town to town. They relied on people welcoming, welcoming them into their home for food and shelter. And oftentimes, a kind of home base. So that this teacher, right or wrong, true or false teacher, this teacher might have like a base of operations for this town. In the next phrase, and does not bring this teaching. So it seems like John's referring to those in a teaching role who are bringing false teaching, in this case, to the town. So, one author says like, like this, he's not just speaking about pagan friends or unbelieving relatives, but of those travelers who profess to be Christian in a teaching role who may have had some standing in the church at large. So, I don't think he's just talking about an unbeliever or someone who might be errant in theology uh, welcoming them into their home. You know why I don't believe that? Because Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, here's one example from Matthew 9, 11. Jesus meets with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's home. He didn't first throw them out, don't bring them into your home, because once they cross that threshold into your home, sin. No, he's saying... He didn't first throw them out and then say, okay, now we can talk to them. As long as they're not under your roof, then, then you can talk to them. He didn't first throw them out and 
had them meet outside, he met with them in, seemingly in Matthew's home. It's not just about allowing an unbeliever into your home, even if they, even if they are devout, relig- devout followers of a false religion, because um, everybody is a follower of something, right? A religion of sorts. Some are going to be in the category, though, of false teachers, anti-Christ, because they're teaching a different, they're peddling a different Christ. But still, even if it's the religion of secular humanism or atheism or someone is an agnostic. So what do we do? Well, the first thing is we are in a little bit different of a context, but I think there's some overlap. And also, he's talking about people who are peddling a false religion. Now, notice the double prohibition here. See that? Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Do not receive him into your house. Don't give him any greeting. Hospitality was a very important aspect of that culture. If Christians were to take a teacher into their home, this was not just um, a show of kindness to provide shelter and food. But it actually had social ramifications. And I think that's what he's getting at. In the Greco-Roman culture, and maybe even in our culture, you can see this as well. I'm going to give you an example of it. But in the Greco-Roman culture, taking someone into your home gave them a social standing in the community that would equal that of the host's social standing. You see that? Someone welcome into your home, and they're staying there for a week, whatever, and you're, you're taking them around town, and you're saying, this is my boy, this is my man, he's one of me, okay? That has that kind of idea. Not only that, it could imply to the people around you that you are affirming what they are believing, and therein lies the problem. Hold fast to the truth. It could be affirming You could be affirming, it could be perceived that you are affirming what they are believing. And that seems to be the case in this first first century uh, letter here. In verse 11, whoever greets him takes part in his wickedness. Also, what is interesting to note, that word for um, gives him a greeting, that greeting there, uh, difficult to see in this English Bible, but that word, do you know that word? So it's used twice in these two verses. We'll give him a greeting for whoever greets him. That's, that word is used one other time in first John, I mean Second John. It's used another time in Second John. Do you know where it's used? It's used in verse four. I rejoiced. Same word. So think about what he's saying. Do not receive him to your house or in such a way where it looks like you're rejoicing, you're affirming what they are believing. That's the give him any greeting. So, if you are doing that, if you are affirming what they're believing, you're taking part in their wicked works. Can I give you a quick illustration? Imagine this with me. Do you know, do you remember Brody and Liz Olson? 
We just took them on as missionaries that we support in our, in our church. Brody and Liz Olson live in Colorado City where they have started the first Christian church in that city. There are very few Christ Christians there. And they have worked hard at getting the, the true teaching of Jesus to the people there, who have, most of whom have come out of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, the fundamentalist Mormons. Now, suppose a couple of Mormon missionaries were given the task of evangelizing that city. So mainstream Mormonism says, we need two missionaries to go and evangelize that city. Would it make sense for Brody to welcome them into their home? They have a nice little setup. When we go there, they have this entire basement. Seems like it might be a kindness to help people out. Someone is in need, so let's help them out, we might say. But think about this. Why would they allow the enemy to set up camp inside theirs? Second, this would put these false teachers on the same social standing as Brody and Liz Olson. Can you picture that? Like, when we're there, we're accepted as Brody's people. Like, oh, you know Brody? Yeah, we know Brody. We're with Brody. We're staying with, oh, you're staying with Brody? Oh, you must be great people if you're staying with Brody. Now, may this not discourage us, though, from loving one another. Looking for little details about, okay, we happen to disagree on this. Well, then you can't come over to my house. So compare that illustration of Brody and Liz with the hospitality that Brody and Liz gave to a man named Clinton, who Ben and I met when we were there in April. This is what Brody says in his update letter, his newsletter. It's hard to find a rougher character than Clinton. First time we met him, he was smoking cigarettes and drinking beer on the deck of the upper floor apartment above us. Clinton would come out for a smoke, and on occasion he'd finally ask us, are you guys running from the law or something? <laughs> we assured him that we were here to serve peop the people, but he was always suspicious of us. Eventually we got to know Clinton a little better, and we learned that his rough exterior was a true reflection of his inner demons. Clinton was a clear example of a life ruined by the FLDS church, the fundamentalist Mormons. His father was told by the prophet, you need to keep an eye on that kid. So from the age of five, Clinton was confined to his bedroom for weeks at a time. Whenever company would arrive or holiday meals were served, Clinton was set up to, sent up to his room for the evening. He endured this treatment for eight years in his house and his frustration mounted. Clinton finally did start rebelling and his parents sent him away at the early age of 13. Over the next five years, Clinton would go from juvie to various foster home, homes until he made his way back to Colorado City and was taken in by the homeowner whose basement we rented. His reputation had preceded him and some accusations were made that forced Clinton to move out of the house. He had nowhere and no one. My parents, Brody writing, my parents decided to take him to Wyoming to live with them for a while. My mom spent many hours teaching Clinton the Bible and my dad got him a job. He was thriving and he remarked to me, He remarked to me later that he was very happy there. 
It was there that Clinton even professed faith in Jesus for salvation. Praise the Lord. But as is, man, sorry, I can't see when I'm crying. But as, but as is sometimes the case with troubled young adults, his faith was questionable, and he eventually moved on. He would meander his way from Rollins, Wyoming, back to Colorado City. During this time, he was in St. George for work, and he was able to see his mom, who he hadn't seen for years. While standing in the parking lot at Costco, he expressed his love for her and desire to have a relationship with the family. She looked, him, looked straight at him and said, Clinton, take those feelings, put them in a concrete box, and bury them forever. Please don't attempt to visit your siblings and try to forget about us. Though one couldn't tell from his outside, Clinton was an emotional wreck. Another year or two passed. And I received a Facebook message from Clinton who said that he has nowhere to go and just needed a place to sleep and eat for a while. It was the worst I'd ever seen him. We decided to take him in for a few weeks to get him functioning again. And we were there when he was in that, in their main room. We ended up housing him for two months. And Liz, Liz and I spent many hours taking him to the ER, scheduling and taking him to the doctor's appointments, counseling appointments, and helping regulate his meds. Though he improved drastically, we are not able to provide a constant, the constant care he needed, so we finally agreed to go to a Christian safe home where he is currently living and receiving attention he needs. He is attending a Christian church and is doing well. Please pray that this young man ruined by the FLDS church would be dramatically restored for the glory of God. That is love. In truth. Love one another. Give Sacrifice. Give more. Sacrifice more. Pray that we would humble ourselves before each other. Don't use the second half of the letter to refuse to love people that we ought to be loving. Secondly, hold fast to the truth. Stand firm on what Christ has taught. Don't waver. Don't waver. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Number two, number three, don't separate the two. Truth and love. This is the big point of the second half of this letter. Truth trumps love. Don't sacrifice the truth for the sake of love because that's not real love. Love for others must be grounded in something. And when you do this, your action might be called hate by the outside world. Use discernment when you ask people to come into your home. Use discernment. 
as you love others. And that's the key discernment. But don't, don't go back on love, on truth for the sake of love. Let's pray to that end. Oh God, thank you for demonstrating your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We want to love like that. May we hold fast to the truth. May we love in truth. A love that is grounded in the teachings of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be looking for ways to sacrifice, to give for the sake of others more and more and more. And may we start, stand, uh, hold fast, stand firm on the truth. We need your help in discerning how to do this, when to do it. Make it clear in our minds as we pursue our neighbors who are no doubt devout followers of something, of someone other than you. So, Give us a kindness, a generosity. May we never affirm a false teaching. People who do not confess that Jesus is the Christ and has come in the flesh. So Lord, guide us. May we look to you and you alone as our vision. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.